Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I bought Scott a present. Oh. It's my object lesson. Oh, I'm excited. I wish I were there in, in person to uh, receive it. Well, uh, it it'll, what? it'll be on your desk when you, when you next come to the office. Is it bigger than a bread box? Depends how small a bread box. I've always found that to be a not very useful question. I agree. Because who has a bread box and who knows how big they are these days? Exactly. Is it like a multi-loaf it, thing? Yeah. yeah. I feel like that's just the traditional place to start is with the bread box. Most and you go bread up or down boxes, from there. I think it would be smaller than. But okay. you, you will see okay. it when object lesson time ro- rolls around. I'm excited. I'm very excited about it. Uh, it's like my birthday is not for a couple more months. I have to say, I'm, no, no, I'm, this I'm, is I'm a, happy to get a jump on it. Some presents are for occasions and some presents are more opportunistic. They arise and they jump out at you and say, you know, Scott R. Anderson needs this. And I, you will wow. definitely understand it right away when, when I show it to you. I'm excited. I'm excited. I actually recently found part of a present I got you uh, in my first few months of working here during the baby cannon surge uh, phase, surge of operations, if you will, in that at one point I got you a crossbow that fires toothpicks. Correct. Um, I remember to that. Add. Yeah. And I, I found the ammunition I bought, which I don't think, I think I only gave Ben like a few of them, which are like fancy toothpicks are like a little thicker to fire through. So baby crossbow is still in my office and still gets fired every now and then. And it's not wholly unrelated to the present that I got you. Oh, oh I'm excited. I, I will say I do distinctly remember spending uh, like an hour or two of my time trying to figure out if you could light the toothpicks on fire so you could have a flaming crossbow. <laughs> and and then I was like, I'm 30-something years old. Why am I doing, am I doing this? <laughs> Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Rational Security. I am one of your regular co-hosts, Scott R. Anderson, back here in the virtual studio, hopefully for the last week or one of the last few weeks until we get our IRL studio back up in action. But I am thrilled to be here with one of my other regular co-hosts, Quinta Jurassic. Hello. Back in action after abandoning us for a week to have to deal with Bizarro <laughs> World Rational Security last week. But we're thrilled to have you back with us. And of course, we have other co-host Emeritus, Mr. Benjamin Wittes, of course. Ben, thank you for joining us as well. It is my supreme pleasure. You returned from Miami recently. You have a deep tan. You're wearing a fairly funky hat and a linen shirt uh, and espadrilles to this day. You still have that Miami spirit with you. But we're glad we were able to pull you back up to this wintry northern-ish, mid-Atlantic-ish climb uh, to get you back on the podcast. I was also in Miami. I would just like to point out two (laughs) things. But where are your espadrilles, Quinta? One is that Quinta was also in Miami. And the second is that all facts in that uh, a paragraph other than that I was in Miami are false. I would just like to say, I want 
to get a boondoggle somewhere warm and tropical. I've only the only the warmest, most tropical place I've ever gotten a work trip has been Baghdad, Iraq. Somebody send me somewhere <laughs> with a beach, please, because <laughs> it doesn't really work out for me. I keep getting very nice invitations to midwestern, northern cities in the middle of winter, and I appreciate it. But give me Scott a beach, guys. Want Come on. Them. I don't, I'll take them. I'll still come, but a beach would be great once in a while. I know I look like I can't handle sun. You're right. I can't, but 20 minutes on the beach will be great. That'll just do great for me. You know, psychologically, spiritually, it'll be good ever for everyone. The remarks will be better. I promise you. Well, regardless, I am thrilled to have you both back in DC with me, even if we are meeting virtually for what has been a incredibly meaty week of national security news. We have several really big stories on several fronts happening on the legal world in the national security space. Not to mention a lot of stories percolating that we're probably going to pick up in the week or two, including some trials and other items involving a certain former president. We're not going to talk about those this week because we have enough other news to fill our plate. So let us turn now to our topics for what we are calling the Meat Lovers Edition in honor of how meaty exactly this week has proven to be on the national security front, particularly the kind of hard national security front uh, that we often deal with. Our topic one for this week, the neighborhood is getting worse. Three American service members were killed in a drone attack committed by Iran-backed militias in Jordan this past weekend. The Biden administration has promised a military response, but one of the groups believed to be responsible has just declared a unilateral cessation of hostilities, seemingly at Iran's urging. How should the United States respond and what will the regional ramifications be? Topic two, don't seek redress in Texas. I was trying to find a mess in Texas. Don't mess with Texas. It didn't really work. This is as close as I could get. Texas Governor Greg Abbott has opted to ignore a federal court ruling demanding that he take down barriers on the Rio Grande on the basis of a novel and highly dubious legal theory, asserting that the state has the exclusive constitutional authority to defend itself from invasion by migrants. How should the Biden administration respond? And topic three, provisional victory? Question mark. The International Court of Justice has issued provisional measures in the genocide case against Israel over its Gaza operations, directing it to punish genocidal rhetoric and allow in humanitarian assistance, among other requirements, but stopping short of requiring a ceasefire. Is this a vindication of Israel's actions or a condemnation, and what will it mean for the trajectory of the conflict? For our first topic, Ben, let me hand it over to you to get us started. Well, everybody was afraid that the war in Gaza would expand, and uh, the war in Gaza has expanded in a fashion that has been proven rather deadly to U.S. forces stationed in Jordan. I know that many people didn't know there were U.S. forces stationed in Jordan, but in that little north uh, east corner uh, there are some, and there are now uh, a number of them injured and three of them killed by attacks, a drone attack from an Iranian-backed militia, which, as Scott says, has just declared a unilateral ceasefire, but has not freed my friend Elizabeth Tsirkov, whom they are holding hostage. Republicans are pressuring the Biden administration for a military response against Iran itself, uh, which would, of course, be an escalation of sort. And this comes at a time when Houthi forces, who are also Iranian-backed, continue to attack international shipping in the Red Sea, all of which proves the famous axiom that what starts in Gaza does not tend to remain in Gaza. And uh, Scott, how fucked are we? So this 
attack this past weekend um, really has the potential to be a pivot point for how the United States is approaching Middle Eastern policy at this point. I'm not sure whether it will. And the Biden administration is, I think, to its credit, being very cautious and deliberate in structuring a response despite political pressure from various corners to pursue one rapidly. To kind of lay out the context of which this has occurred, this is the latest in what has been an escalating and fairly rapidly and substantially escalating pace of attacks by these various Iran-backed militia groups, of which there are many in Iraq and Syria, um, since the October 7th massacre by Hamas that led to the Israeli uh, military operation in Gaza, that this is all anomaly response to. These attacks happened before. They've happened fairly often. There were about 120 of them from 2020 through October 2023, probably 2021 through October 2023, through the first couple years of the Biden administration. But since October of last year, so just in the last four months or so, um, we have seen 160 of them. So a pretty, really dramatic increase. And in particular, targeting a broader range of targets, this attack this weekend actually was part of a multi-country kind of wave of drone attacks, one against Jordan, if I recall correctly, one against Israel, Israel, a facility in Israel, one against Iraq, one against Syria. The Jordan one was the one that succeeded uh, and really tragically killed a number of U.S. service members and injured many more, uh, north of 40 at this point, some quite severely, at least eight were medevaced out of the country. The group that's been doing this is is a little unclear. It's actually a bunch of different groups that are operating under many of which, not all of which, but many of which are operating under the umbrella name of this uh, called the Islamic Resistance of Iraq, kind of an effort to like confuse responsibility and accountability uh, and to kind of tie all these different groups together. But many of which are anomaly independent. They have long, many of them have existed for a long time. They're pseudo-criminal organizations in a lot of cases. They have turf. They do different types of criminal activities in addition to paramilitary activities. But then awkwardly, they are also many of them part of the Iraqi government. Uh, they were formed often as as ways to kind of bolster the security forces of Iraq during the counter-ISIS offensive uh, with support from Iran. And then they've just kind of hung around, but in an effort to get control of, out of over them, the Iraqi government put them on the government payroll and tried to put them in the chain of command somewhat unsuccessfully. So you have these weird state-sanctioned criminal groups slash terrorist groups slash paramilitary groups that do things all the time the Iraqi government doesn't like, including hurling rockets at Iraqi military facilities because U.S. soldiers happen to be there that often kill Iraqi soldiers, frankly, kill more Iraqi soldiers than Americans. And and that kind of gets to the danger of this act. Um, Striking a facility in Jordan is pretty dangerous. This Tower 22 facility that was hit has a close nexus to Syria. It's close to Syria. It was a hardened facility. It had security measures, which which wasn't clear to me initially, like to what extent it was. And we still don't know whether it's the same scale of security measures facilities in Iraq and Syria have. But that really matters because Iraq and Syria, U.S. soldiers and U.S. diplomatic personnel are so used to getting attacked by rockets. It's been happening for over a decade or more. They have hardened facilities and procedures so that they're really very rarely fatal, like less than a dozen people um, prior to this attack actually may still be under a dozen, even with this Jordan attack, have been killed by these attacks in the last four or five years. That's really different when you start expanding your range of targets to other facilities that might not have the same countermeasures where the personnel might not be expecting a military strike and may not be positioned to respond as quickly. They may not have uh, countermeasures and advanced warning systems. And so it means you have a much higher level of fatality, even though this is just one drone that got flung at this facility. Dozens of drones have been flung at U.S. diplomatic and military facilities in Iraq and Syria over the last few months, um, and they haven't had this sort of consequence. So the question now is, this is the deadliest attack of this sort we've seen. Um, a number of U.S. personnel have been injured and killed. Uh, you know, We haven't seen anything close to this since the direct Iranian ballistic missile attack on Al-Assad Air, Air Base. That was a response to the Soleimani strike that left dozens of U.S. soldiers injured but didn't actually kill anyone somewhat miraculously. So the question is, how does the Biden administration respond? 
they've already said they are planning a military response. They said they've suggested it's going to be likely to be tiered and involve several waves of action, kind of a much more strategic, systematic effort to contain and disable this threat from these groups. And notably, the Biden administration just in the last few weeks before this attack actually changed the legal theory under which it's operating to one that is a little controversial, was originally advanced by the Trump administration, originally eschewed by this administration, but now that they've shifted back to it, allows for potentially much more comprehensive military operations against these groups. So that would seem to be the direction you're moving in here, but there's lots of political challenges for that. You have the Iraqi government that is super, and Iraqi public, that is very hostile to U.S. military operations in Iraq without its consent, and it will not consent to these attacks against groups that are nominally part of the state apparatus, even if they are problematic ones. We've seen the Iraqi government already renew calls for negotiations to lead to the withdrawal of the remaining 2,500 U.S. troops in Iraq. Those calls are going to get more vocal to the extent you see a major response in Iraq, almost certainly. Whether they'll hit the point where the Iraqi government will actually rescind its consent and really put the United States in a difficult legal position as to whether those troops can stay there or not, who knows? But uh, it is a really um, difficult political situation that you're in with a, with a kind of legal valence about the degree that consent is necessary to, con- to remain in Iraq and arguably potentially even necessary to continue counter-ISIS operations in Syria and Iraq, which are premised on collective self-defense with Iraq, although there are contrary arguments the United States could make there as well. So it's a really, really tricky position because the United States has these major international constraints while even as while they've kind of opened up their domestic legal theory to potentially pursue broader action, there may be political reasons why they can't do that. And layering on top of that, the fact that Qatab Hezbollah, one of the most prominent militia groups, one of the ones that's a, a center of the Islamic resistance of Iraq, although not the entirety of it, the fact that one of them has apparently at Iran's urging said, we're ceasing operations against US military presence in Iraq, complicates this even further. Because how seriously do you take that pledge? Does this does this mean you've accomplished your goal of deterrence without even having to take military action if your goal really is to stop these sorts of attacks? Or is it just a pretext and a stalling tactic so that they can reposition and do things more dangerous down the road? Those are the hard questions the Biden administration is really wrestling with. And like I said, we're a few days past it. And they have obviously been planning and discussing an attack, but they haven't undertaken anything yet. Um, and I think that is, to their credit, thinking about carefully calibrating as best you can how to go about these things is the right way to do it. And that takes time uh, and often a lot of negotiations and talking to people. And that's what the Biden administration seems to be doing before it undertakes whatever this next phase of this conflict will be. So can I ask, what is your reading about why Kataib Hezbollah, I don't know, can you have a unilateral ceasefire? I feel like a ceasefire is kind of a mutual thing. That's they said, said they're not going to keep doing hostilities, it. So right, exactly. I don't know, yeah. yeah. What, what is the, the game here? Like, what is the, the strategic objective that they and Iran get out of saying that they're going to hold off? They're trying to disincentivize response against Iran. But then why do it in the first place? So Iran's objective through this whole post-October 7th period has been to ratchet up pressure on both the United States and Israel across as many fronts as possible without bringing down the wrath of God on itself. So it has encouraged Hezbollah to harass Israel from the north. It has encouraged a lot of attacks on the United States in the region. It has encouraged Houthi attacks on international shipping, but it has not done the sort of things that would bring a full-scale response against any of these parties, particularly not itself. And uh, killing actual U.S. service personnel is a real escalation, and maybe more than they counted on. Uh, you don't always count on these attacks being successful. 
And, you know, and so then you have suddenly a lot of pressure on the administration to respond against Iran. And now they're in a sudden de-escalate mode, though it may be a little bit late for that. That's my read on it. And so, Scott, do you do you agree that the the fact that American service members were killed might not have actually been the original intent on Kateb al-Hezbollah's part? I have trouble believing that on KH's part. Um, I think the real question is the relationship between KH and Iran, to what extent they speak for each other. And again, whether KH actually was responsible for this attack, we don't know that actually, right? Like, uh, we don't know who the actual perpetrators underneath this umbrella term are. Um, so it could have been some other set of actors. It's a highly decentralized network of like pretty, again, individually interested organizations that share a common ideological and cultural alignment with Iran, but have their own interests and their own agendas, which include to some extent jockeying for position in terms of being the most radical or the most outspoken or the most actively hostile to the United States for recruitment purposes, for credibility purposes, things like that. So um, I don't think we know 100% who did this, even though it does, KH has always been a, a leading suspect within that IRI umbrella. I think the key point here is that like Iran is always playing this somewhat dangerous game. It's actually not dissimilar, I think, uh, although much lesser scale to, to what we think might have happened with October 7th itself. Iran funds and gives equipment to and empowers all of these regional proxies. It very clearly has some substantial control over them because we've seen the rate of these attacks, particularly in Iraq and Syria, wax and wane with uh, the state of a ceasefire in Gaza, for example, with different aspects of the U.S.-Iran relationship. So Iran obviously can turn the spigot on or off. But that doesn't necessarily translate to one-to-one operational control. Um, it's qu- perfectly possible that some of these groups might have done something that Iran didn't anticipate or might have had kind of catastrophic success, um, which is, a, which is, I think, a prevailing theory I still find very persuasive to explain what happened with, with Hamas's operation October 7th in Israel, where they just did something that they were threatening to do, but didn't think they were actually going to su- succeed at this scale. Again, insofar as these groups are usually targeting hardened facilities in Iraq and Syria, it's possible Tower 22, just people weren't as alert, weren't as aware, weren't as worried. The reporting is that they confused the kind of suicide drone that was used to make launch this attack for a friendly U.S. drone. I kind of suspect encampments in active combat zones would be very wary of making that sort of mistake. Maybe because these guys are guys in Jordan that usually aren't used to operating in those circumstances, they just weren't as on the ball about monitoring this. That's entirely speculation. I don't want to blame anyone by any chance, but it's totally possible. You're just, you're not in an operational tempo if you're not in these combat zones. So I think it's possible that Iran is actually genuinely saying, okay, whoa, we overstepped. We got to ratchet back. We're worried about a catastrophic response. I have no doubt that's part of the calculus. We also have to accept the, the possibility that this is a much more cynical move on the part of Iran and KH, because by putting this out there, they immediately make it more politically difficult for the United States to pursue a responsive action, particularly in Iraq, because notably this KH cessation of hostilities has been tied to the prime minister of Iraq, who said, I've been pushing for this for weeks. I finally got through to them, you know, kind of like, this is a big victory for me, United States. You should thank me for accomplishing this, even though the timing is very bad with this Jordan attack. And so now if the United States were to hit KH in particular in Iraq, um, and KH is one of the bigger groups that I suspect is easier to target because it has more places to target and they probably are under greater intelligence monitoring by the United States um, than like maybe certain smaller groups, then you would say, okay, if we hit KH now, it looks like we are not only not getting consent for the Iraqi government for the strike, which makes them so controversial in the first place, we're straight up rejecting 
a major policy accomplishment by the current government that seems to be in the direction of peace and stability, which is what Iraqis mostly want. So it makes it that much more politically damaging for the United States to pursue. I kind of suspect like when Iran plays these games, they're playing both edges. They are often find themselves in like basically win-win situations because the United States is just in a bad political position in the Middle East in pursuing any sort of military action because there's always long-term political consequences for it that are hard to judge and that might outweigh whatever short-term operational benefits you might get for disabling or deterring the direct attacks. And Iran knows this and so they keep doing these provocative things trying to get the United States to overstep in its response and therefore undermine its position in Iraq for having a military presence there. And its objective has always been get the Americans out of Iraq. And that's still its objective, I I think. All of which is a long way to say, we don't 100% know. And that's why there's a tricky situation for the Biden administration to really suss out. We won't know for weeks how serious the cessation of hostilities is. And perhaps in those weeks, KH will harden itself or hide its key leadership and take other steps that will make it harder to respond militarily in a meaningful way. Um, and so that's that's the hard balance that, that the Biden administration folks have to, to consider as they look at the intelligence to decide what to do. Ben, you mentioned that this uh, group, Kataib al-Hezbollah, is, is actually holding a friend of yours hostage. Can you talk about that a little? Yeah, I mean, Kataib hezbollah is a bad group of guys, and um, they are, among other things, uh, uh, they hold hostages, and they, back in March, I believe, uh, captured... She's an Israeli-Russian scholar named Elizabeth Tsirkov, uh, who people who follow Middle East stuff on Twitter may know. She was uh, uh, doing her dissertation at Princeton, and she um, has spent a lot of time both in Iraq and Syria over the years. And she was kidnapped in Iraq, um, in Baghdad, and has been held by Khatib Hezbollah ever since, recently was forced to release a kind of hostage video. So we we do know that she is alive. And uh, there was a uh, significant New York Times, uh, the New York Times ran a uh, article by a friend of hers and about her, her sister who's been campaigning for her release. Um, but it is a very sticky situation because she is not American. And so the, the, it's not one of the hostages that the U.S. government has a lot of equities in. The Russians, you know, don't, uh, seem to care very much. And the Israelis, uh, you know, don't have an active line of communication to Iranian proxies about, you know, the people that they're holding. And so, it's a it's a very unfortunate situation, and it is maddening for those of us who uh, care about Elizabeth, uh, whom I know actually purely electronically. I've never met her in person. We've corresponded a fair bit over the years, but uh, that you know, Khatib Hezbollah is among other things. You know, it kills American soldiers, it kidnaps scholars. And it is also part of the government that we help fund. And, uh, you know, that, uh, is a, a, a maddening situation and, you know, hashtag free Liz. But Scott, I want to turn back to war powers matters before we uh, switch topics, because you alluded to something interesting before, which was that the U.S. had actually switched its theory of what the domestic law authorizing uh, any U.S. operations in in theater is 
Uh, so remind us, what was it? What is it? And why did it change? So the United States has had this kind of oscillating legal theory um, because there's been a difference between the Trump administration and Biden administration's approach on this that have in the last few weeks, really, arguably in the last week or two, kind of finally united. The Trump administration, which is the first country that started doing the, or pardon me, the first presidential administration that really started doing these defensive military actions against uh, Iran-backed militias in Syria, and then particularly in Iraq in 2019, which is a much more kind of controversial step because it's being done without the consent of the Iraqi government. Their theory at the time was that these actions are authorized by the 2001 and 2002 IOMS as kind of an adjunct to the counter-ISIS mission, which is what U.S. forces are primarily pursuing in Iraq and Syria. The logic goes those authorized necessary and appropriate force to pursue the objective of uh, eliminating ISIS, and that, well, if you're eliminating ISIS, that means that you can't let your soldiers be attacked by third parties uh, or your partner forces be attacked by third parties. Uh, and so they embrace an idea that AUMS, through that language, authorized something called ancillary self-defense, which is this idea that, hey, we can defend our forces and our partner forces against attacks from anyone as long as they're under an AUMF-authorized mission. Now, that doesn't necessarily reached to say the AUMF authorizes unlimited military action against all those targets. There has to be some nexus to self-defense, but the executive branch has never really fleshed out exactly what that nexus is. It's suggested in correspondence with Congress that it's somewhat narrow, but in practice, like a lot of these strikes haven't been entirely that narrow. Um, so it's a little, it's a little convoluted. The Biden administration, when it came into office, abandoned this theory, and they relied strictly on the president's Article II authority, um, which basically says that if it's in the national interest and it's not of a substantial scale or doesn't risk escalation to substantial scale, the president can pursue it. They did this in part because the AUMF theory was always seen as controversial. It was seen as a way to further stretch these already badly mangled AUMFs beyond their original intent by Congress, and Article II is just a little cleaner. But the problem is Article 2 has procedural constraints from the War Powers Resolution of 1973, basically says every time you use an authority, you have to report it in 48 hours, and then after 60 to 90 days, you're supposed to withdraw if Congress doesn't authorize it. To avoid this, the Biden administration would just bundle its military actions, like every few months it would take a set of strikes, and would treat each of those as an independent operation, meaning it would get its own 48 hours report and then its own 60 to 90 day clock. So the clock never ran because instead of pursuing one set of military operation or one military operation against Iran-backed militias, it did four of them over the course of the several months. It's a little bit of a dodge that the executive branch has, has deployed in prior search or circumstances. Recently, in the last few weeks, the Biden administration, though, has, has abandoned that and moved back to the ancillary self-defense argument, saying the 2001 and 2002 AMS authorized this action. That's notable because I, I suspect it means that they think that the tempo and pace of these operations is likely to increase to the point that you're not able to make that intermittent spacing structural argument, meaning that they're going to have a much more significant number and frequency of these responses, or at least they might in the near future, and that they might well extend past 60 to 90 days. Because those run up against those war power resolutions uh, limitations, they have an incentive to say, well, let's find a statute that can authorize these and that leads them back to this ancillary self-defense. There has to have to be some nexus to self-defense of the counter-ISIS mission. Like that is a constraining factor that doesn't exist for the Article 2 claims. Like it's somewhat more constraining in terms of substantive scope than an Article 2 claim. But the procedural measures are really the thing I suspect driving this. And it's a sign that the Biden administration thought that these things very well might escalate and that they were at least legally preparing to have the option to pursue more substantial, sustained military operations. And I think that might be what comes 
out of this, quite possibly, notwithstanding the difficult regional dynamics that that would put the Biden administration in. Um, but certainly, at least legally, it seems to be a more available option now um, than it was under the Biden administration's prior legal theory. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Well, from trouble on the Iraqi-Jordanian-Syrian border to trouble on our own southern border, let us turn to the great state of Texas, which is doing some not-so-great things by some people's views uh, these days, but some very novel things, legally and constitutionally novel things, uh, specifically Governor Greg Abbott, uh, a man who does not shy away from controversy, especially when it comes to fights with the federal government over immigration and related issues, is doing something quite exceptional. There is an existing judicial order from federal courts uh, essentially removing a uh, injunction that had been placed on federal agents uh, from removing barbed wire and other barriers along the southern border put there by the state of Texas. The Biden administration has sought to remove these. Um, there have been an injunction at some point prohibiting them from doing so as the legal arguments for who has the authority to do this and whether Texas has can do this were resolved. Those legal arguments have now been resolved all the way up to the Supreme Court, more or less. And yet the state of Texas has indicated that uh, or Governor Abbott has indicated, I should say, that he intends to come back and continue to install these barriers. And it specifically argued that he has the authority to do so as the governor of Texas or the state government of Texas has the authority to do so. And that that can't be superseded by federal or interfered with by federal authority. And he has even gone so far to suggest that law enforcement and other potentially National Guard forces in the state of Texas will be used to enforce its perceived constitutional right to install these sorts of barriers in the future. Quinda, let me turn to you on this. In making this argument, Governor Abbott is relying upon a pretty unique reading of a largely overlooked uh, clause of the Constitution um, relating to invasions. Tell us a little bit about what the legal theory is behind this action, and then how we think this might fit into the legal debate over this action, and ultimately lead to some sort of policy resolution one way or the other. The relevant clause here is uh, Article 1, Section 10, Clause 3, which reads, No state shall, without the consent of Congress, lay any duty of tonnage, keep troops or ships of war in time of peace, enter into any agreement or compact with another state or with a foreign power or engage in war unless actually invaded or in such imminent danger as will not admit of delay. Now, does that sound to you like that gives Texas the authority to disobey federal law? I don't think so. But the argument that, that Abbott is making here is that because migrants crossing the Rio Grande into Texas constitute an invasion, that this essentially 
unlocks um, an ability on Texas's part to protect itself against that invasion constitutionally, such that Texas is able to essentially override the relevant federal law here. The argument from there gets a bit tricky, but that is really the the core of it. There's a great piece that we ran recently on Lawfare by Steve Loddick that walks through why this is a pretty tendentious reading of the text, especially given that there's not really any argument for why uh, migrants crossing into Texas would constitute an invasion under any reasonable uh, definition of the term. Um, I think it's also worth pointing out that Abbott is really drawing on what I think it's fair to say is a sort of explicitly antebellum view of the Constitution as a compact between states. Um, he he references that theory uh, explicitly in his statement on the Supreme Court ruling, um, which, as you say, lifted uh, this lower court injunction and allowed CBP to cut these wires to uh, allow migrants through. Um, and references this idea of a compact and says that the federal government has broken that compact, implying that Texas is therefore able to to protect itself. That is. If you read that alongside uh, South Carolina's uh, declaration of secession, you see that same language about a broken compact. And this is a, th- a understanding of the Constitution that was drawn on by secessionists and that was explicitly rejected by the Supreme Court after the Civil War. I do not think it is a coincidence that Abbott is kind of drawing on that language, even though that's that's not you know the argument that he he makes in uh, in front of the Supreme Court. And I think it points to, you know, a larger issue, which is, I think there, there are real and serious legal issues here, and we, sh- we can talk about them. This is political posturing, and it's political posturing at the at the sake of human life. Um, migrants have died because CBP was not able to cut through this wire quickly enough to reach them. Currently, the state of things, as I understand it, is that the Supreme Court... Um, that Texas is not forbidden from putting up more wire, but that CBP is allowed to cut through the wire. But as the United States has argued in its briefing, the wire is not a piece of cake to cut through. It's like, it's razor wire. It takes a while to get through. And so the longer that Texas is, you know, continually allowed to put this up, the greater and greater risk there is that more people will get stuck in the river and not be able to be helped by CBP. Um, and so, there are, I think, serious questions about what Texas is up to here, but I do want to underline, you know, there are real people whose lives are at stake in the most literal possible sense. So I want to add to this that this particular skirmish takes place alongside of the Republican congressional uh, apparent abandonment of a border security deal that was itself supposed to be the price of continued support for Ukraine. And if that sounds like a non sequitur layered on top of a non sequitur, it's because it sort of is. But, you know, for a number of years, Republicans in Congress have argued that border security legislation is the most important thing that needs to to happen and a variety i mean people say that immigration and and border security is the hardest issue in washington i don't know if that's true but it's certainly one of them and um republicans finally found an issue that they could 
really leverage to force the Biden administration to shift gears on the border, which was uh, the administration's desire to have more money to uh, support Ukraine, um, which, of course, has run out around the end of the year. And, you know, now that uh, Trump has come out against this border deal and against the negotiations that have apparently borne fruit, although we've never seen legislative text, the deal is, I don't know if it's dead, but it's certainly on life support. And the result is that these uh, these skirmishes between uh, border states like Texas, particularly Texas, and the federal government, they become more acute because there is no immediate prospect of the federal government actually taking uh, a more aggressive posture toward the border. I was down there recently, and I, I mean, I do think there is a genuine situation there that um, a lot of Democrats have been in denial about for uh, a while that really requires a, a a shift in gears in in one direction or another. It's it's not obvious to me what what that should look like, but the serial Republican temptation, both at the state level and at the federal level, to raise the stakes, often at the expense of, uh, as Quintus says, migrant safety. Um, but in the congressional case, raising the stakes is at the ex- expense of Ukrainian safety. So it's, you know, kind of raising the stakes in all kinds of other areas in order then to say no to precisely the kind of border security tightening that they purport to want. It's a really destructive and uh, very frustrating um, uh, approach to governance. And I want to add that and say, you know, I think there's also a lot of interesting legal brinksmanship at play in this case that reflects kind of some legal realities of, frankly, like a post-Trump administration era, both in terms of the model of some Trump litigation and the changes in the federal judiciary. I mean, we essentially have the state of Texas advancing a, a very novel and very a very novel constitutional argument of extremely limited credibility um, that not many people will take seriously. That is just the nature of this legal argument. It is not one that I think anybody's going to sign off on in the Supreme Court. Most legal scholars aren't going to sign off on it. I suspect a lot of Texas state lawyers probably would not have signed off on it. Well, except we we had the Supreme Court vote, you know, four justices dissented from this emergency ruling on on lifting the stay, which I think is an indication that four of them at least found it to some extent credible. So it's very different from the original posture about the stay versus an argument of the exclusive uh, authority coming from this invasions clause uh, extending to migration, right? Um, and I also would be a little surprised to hear about, like my guess, if I if we had gotten an opinion from those four justices, which we didn't, my strong suspicion is that it's much more about the, uh, you know, uh, standards for injunctive action and limiting harms. I think they would essentially argue Texas actually, we don't know, but like, I, I, I wouldn't read into that, that that somehow this means you have four votes for Governor Abbott's position on this. I think that is probably not correct. Uh, what I do think you might come out of this, though, is that you've got this lacking credibility legal argument, but 
it plays into this unique dynamic, which is that federalism issues are very sensitive for the federal judiciary, particularly this federal judiciary, uh, meaning the Roberts Court kind of era federal judiciary. And much like the separation of powers disputes that we saw former President Trump play into and continue to play into in all his litigation, where he makes brinksmanship arguments because he knows by bringing up and squarely rooting them in separation of powers arguments, courts are going to be hesitant to rule against him outright in the exact same way. I think you're seeing Texas do a similar thing here. They're playing this brinksmanship with federalism. And then this is all happening in the Fifth Circuit, which is one federal appellate court that actually does buy into these arguments, meaning you actually have to get all the way to Supreme Court to consistently be able to say, we're going to resolve these things. And so you end up with these very limited, even then, marginal rulings saying, well, we're not going to rule on this big case. We're going to rule very narrowly on the facts. So in this case, CBP does have the authority to remove this wire. We're not going to touch the separate question as to whether Texas could keep putting it out there, right? That is a very understandable judicial instinct to have very narrow rulings in a very contentious issue space. But that means that it's not that hard to just go one notch further for Texas and come back with another argument about why they can do one other step of something else, litigate that out, and further delay this matter, just keep kicking the can down the road. And it's kind of this persistent dynamic that we're seeing in lots of different contexts now that this really seems to play into. And it reminds me of just a lot of Trump-era litigation around subpoenas and lots of other issues that were this tricky areas of law that, you know, the former President Trump and now Governor Abbott were able to lean into judicial instincts to of, of constitutional avoidance to stall for time and, and get accomplish their political objectives, even though they're on shaky constitutional ground. It's a dangerous practice. And one that, again, because Texas is in the Fifth Circuit, they're particularly well-equipped to advance. So I suspect this isn't the last we're going to see of this argument. I think you're letting the Supreme Court off too too easy here, because one of one of the main prongs that they're considering in, in the state is likelihood of success on the merits. And Vladek has, has written a lot um, about how that has increasingly sort of factored centrally, seemingly into the court's rulings on emergency decisions. So I do think that I agree, obviously, that yes, a ruling at this stage is different than a ruling on the merits, but I still find it disturbing that four justices were willing to give it that level of credence. That may be right. I'm, I'm, I'm simply saying I don't think that means that Abbott's invasion argument is likely to meet with the same sort of threshold. I think there's lots of other grounds by which the Supreme Court may have reached that or members of the Supreme Court may have reached that vote. Can I ask you all one other question that always bothers me in this that I think is the a partial solution or a necessary and advisable step the Biden administration is not taking. I don't 100% understand why. Why aren't they pursuing more criminal and civil liability for people actually doing this? Not just this, but like a lot of the outright cruelty. Like we have seen more and more state officials do things of real questionable legality that have real human consequence, including the, you know, busing and deceptive busing of people um, to different parts of the country without equipping them in ways that have real human costs and that seem clearly potentially criminal to me on a lot of different fronts, including federal, different federal causes of action, not just under state law. And I really have to ask myself why a, a prong of the Biden administration strategy and pushing against back against this isn't to say, at least for people doing the most egregious, cruelest steps of this that cross very credible criminal barriers – we're going to actually hold you criminally accountable, or if not criminally accountable, perhaps civilly accountable under, you know, Civil Rights Act sort of violations. I'd have to think a little more about the availability of that. But does that seem credible or plausible to you all at all? No. Why? (laughs) So, first of all, on the criminal side, um, you would have a real separation between administration policy and criminal decision making, right? And so the you know, the, the question of criminal enforcement would be a question for 
depending on the theory of the case, the Civil Rights Division of the Justice Department or uh, the local U.S. attorney, neither of whom reports to the administration in a policy sense, right? They're independent, more independent on, on enforcement matters. I think the Civil Rights Division would, I think you could have conversation with the Civil Rights Division about saying we need to look at this. I don't think that would be beyond the pale. I, I think the normative inhibitions against having that conversation outside of the Justice Department are substantial. Um, but the, the second thing is to the extent that you're thinking about it at the policy level at DHS or at the White House, you're thinking about this as a, this is all immigration issues and border enforcement issues are deep political losers for the administration. And they are, they are not on offense on this subject. They are on defense, defense, defense. And with every poll, they get more on defense. Um, and they are looking for a legislative way out that lets them give, uh, the enforcement heavy crowd a lot of what they want, but do it in a way that the administration thinks is lawful. Uh, as opposed to what the Trump administration did, which was to do it in a fashion that this administration did not think they could continue to defend and didn't want to continue to defend. And so they're looking uh, actually for political compromise here, not to go on political offense. And, and, and they see the, uh, the pressure that they get from the immigration liberals as a real nuisance, not a, you know, not something that they're looking to capitulate to. So I, I, I think you're, you're misreading their ambitions, honestly. I, I think that's misreading what the actual objective needs to be for the Biden administration. Like, there, there is no solution to this on the table. There is not one within regional legislative reach. It's a huge lift. But one thing that they could accomplish is that they could set up real barriers to when we see a Trump two administration or a similar administration's orientation to what are the most objectionable and, and politically problematic actions, which are just the outright cruelty of some of this. Like child separation was a big loser of an issue for the Trump administration. And we haven't seen the Biden administration really put up guardrails against return to sorts of policies. I think that's a real problem. This I I mean, I, look, I agree it's a problem, but I think Ben is right. I mean, look, like yet yeah, the Biden administration has been better on immigration than the Trump administration. That is a low, low bar. And a lot of the stuff that this administration has embraced are things that pre-2016 would have been extremely far to the right, such as the implementation of Title 42 as a way to keep people out of the country um, while their asylum cases are are processing. I, I think that, you know, I agree with you, that is what they should do. But it seems to me pretty clear that the administration has decided, as Ben says, immigration is a loser for them. And they're going to, uh, frankly, sell out migrants as much as they can in order to get wins on other policy issues. And that is ugly. Um, it's deeply upsetting, but it seems pretty clear to me that that is the route that they're going. But I also don't think that. I, I, so to be fair to them, I'm I'm not nearly as harsh on them here as Quinta is. <laughs> Same the, as it ever was. <laughs> the, the, like there is a completely unsustainable situation at the border, and you know it's a situation of 
something like 10,000 people a day crossing the border illegally. And under current law, as they read it, if you say certain magic words, which everybody gets trained to say, then you get essentially handed a date to show up in trial court or in immigration court some distant time in the future, and you can stay in the meantime. And that has been a magnet for very large numbers of people. It has turned over a lot of power to the cartels that run the other side of the border. And um, I don't think the administration is, uh, well, I don't think Republicans are wrong to say there needs to be a a, a way to handle this situation. And I don't think the administration is wrong to say, let's create a, uh, a framework to deal with it legislatively. Now, that has to be done in a careful fashion and in a humane fashion. But I don't think that a, the country needs to, to, to tolerate, uh, just sort of unrestricted flow over that border on an illegal basis. So I, I don't want to sound like I'm uh, sharing Quinta's, uh, um, you know, anger at the administration here. I think they're in an impossible position. That said, I don't think there is any chance in the world that their, that their primary objective right now is to prevent a subsequent Trump administration from re-implementing uh, the harshest policies that they exercised, their objective right now is to limit the political damage of this situation for themselves. Jurassic 2024, open borders and one world government. You heard it here first. <laughs> you know, I, I'll just say like the sublimation of, if you're going to draw a principal basis and say the sublimation of law enforcement principles shouldn't be sublimated to the you know, political interests of the executive branch, you're making the contrary argument here. Like the core point here is that this is criminal conduct, or at least very colorably criminal conduct that's happening in a lot of these cases. When you are deliberately harming, injuring people, refusing them water, restraining people from giving assistance to people who are dying on the border, forcibly relocating them, I think those are criminal acts, federally criminal acts that are not being investigated for political equities. And if at a minimum, if the one thing the Biden administration could salvage from this very difficult situation is to draw a line and install some sanctions that the most cruel, most inhumane actions, which I don't think Title 42 deportation, while I disagree with it, it falls in that category. I mean, the truly inhumane stuff that we saw happen, like that would be a victory and a meaningful one. And frankly, one that I think has political salience um, with the constituency. So, uh, you know, that's that's my pitch for at least a low hanging fruit. I hope the Biden administration uh, considers taking a stab at. Speaking of one world government, we have a ruling from the International Court of Justice in South Africa's case against Israel under the Genocide Convention, or more precisely, an interim order. The merits of the case, I think, will, it's fair to say, will be going on for quite a few years now. But in the meantime, we have a ruling finding, first off, uh, what everyone cares about most, the jurisdictional question. They do have prima facie jurisdiction. The prima facie jurisdiction being very different from actual jurisdiction, which we will not find about for later, for about three years. Yes, we're going to table that clear. for now. It also found uh, that South Africa's claims that Israel has violated the Genocide Commission are plausible and ordered that Israel take a number of provisional measures to avoid violating the convention. 
There is a lot to get into here. Scott, I'm going to start with you. What specifically did the court rule and what do you make of it? Yeah. So, you know, essentially we got a, a, a multi-part ruling, which is how ICJ judgments usually work. You have different justices joining different provisions, but it was pretty unified. 15 of the 17 judges who were involved, that's 15 standard judges of the ICJ and then an ad hoc appointee from each party were in alignment on the vast majority of the the holding. And that is essentially that there was prima facie jurisdiction, meaning the ICJ can rule this. That doesn't mean that there will actually be a jurisdiction of full finding in the end. And prima facie jurisdiction is like a line that's kind of been evolving exactly how the ICJ feels about it and where exactly the line is. It's a little fact-specific uh, and, and context-specific, so it's a little hard to generalize. But um, I don't think people are necessarily super surprised, given recent rulings in the Myanmar context and in the Ukraine context, to see a prima facie jurisdiction finding here, basically saying there is a colorable case made that we might have jurisdiction here. Um, and then you saw several provisional measures uh, installed. These essentially require the uh, Israeli government to allow humanitarian assistance into Gaza, um, to take steps to punish uh, genocidal rhetoric, um, to try and preserve evidence of genocide, to take actions to prevent potential genocidal actions, uh, and a number of kind of other related measures. Um, and then perhaps most importantly, it says we're going to revisit this in a month, and Israel owes us a report on this in a month. I actually think that's the most significant part of of this particular regime that's being set up by this decision, uh, which I can get to explain why in a minute. What it didn't do is, uh, first, interestingly, it didn't appear, appear, doesn't appear to have compelled uh, access for any sort of UN or other international investigatory body. The preserving evidence kind of suggests maybe that will be a subsequent action uh, because it's retaining and providing access to evidence. So maybe that's rolled up in that to some extent. But there were calls, and I can't remember what was in the initial application, but I believe it was, to say, no, you actually need to provide access to independent, independent third parties to review some of these claims. I don't believe that was included in here, although maybe I missed it somewhere. It's it's a lot of, of, of words in these opinions. And then perhaps most importantly, what was missing is a ceasefire. South Africa had asked for a requirement of a ceasefire. Um, I think a lot of people looking at this case had been very dubious of the that claim that that was likely to come out of this, um, and it didn't. Um, in fact, the court did not touch on the possibility of a ceasefire in any meaningful way, um, and we can get into why that might be, uh, but instead did stop short of that, instead issued these other provisional measures. And that's led to a lot of both sides claiming this both as, as a win to various extents uh, in a kind of an interesting way. So, Ben, how has this been received in Israel? It is hard to explain how offensive this case is to Israeli and more broadly to worldwide Jewish sensibilities. Um, and uh, that may be a subject for another day, the the sort of cultural reception of a case like this. But I think, so a lot of the reaction reflects the sense that this, this case is a intentionally highly offensive gesture. But that said, the Israelis are, if nothing else, uh, good lawyers and they, that they know that this went about as well for them as they possibly could have. So not only is there no order of a ceasefire, there's really no order that they cannot contend they were doing anyway, with the single exception of the ability to 
uh, the the regulation of senior officials' statements, which um, I will get to in a moment, because it's actually the point on which they're most vulnerable. Uh, and so I think there's a, a pretty pervasive sense that this could have been a lot of, a lot worse for them that mingles with the anger that the case happened at all. Uh, this will leave a very bad stain on Israeli-South African relations uh, that have never been very good, but uh, will this will be remembered in a in a in a deep way. I want to talk a little bit about the area in which I think the court most correctly dinged the Israeli government and on which the government has responded in about the worst way it is possible to have imagined, uh, although it didn't do it as a, I mean, it did it as a collection of crazy individuals rather than as a, uh, as a government. But, um, so one of the primary vulnerabilities that Israel had in this litigation was just the individual statements of ministers of the government, some of which had, you know, called for transfer of Palestinians, some of whom, including Bibi himself, I think, referred to, um, referred to Hamas as Amalekites, which is a, it's a, a, a biblical reference that refers to a tribe that attacked the Israelites and that uh, the commandment uh, of response to is to annihilate them. And it was not the Hamas wing of Amalek that is called upon to be annihilated. It is Amalek itself. And so referring to Hamas as Amalek at least raises a question of what you do with Palestinian children. And, and it was an exceedingly ill-advised uh, thing for uh, Bibi to say. And even the very measured and, um, and I think very admirable current president of Israel, uh, Bougie Herzog, you know, had made some comments that uh, were clearly about Hamas, but if you don't specify Hamas very precisely could be interpreted to be about Palestinians more broadly. And then, of course, the crazy right of the Israeli uh, government, the uh, Bezalel Smotrich and, and Itamar Ben-Gvir, um, have said all kinds of things. And, um, you know, one of the problems with the Genocide Convention, and uh, which is, by the way, a convention that really warrants some, some, some scrutiny at this point um, as to what value it has in, in international human rights, one of the one of the features of it is that everything turns on intent so you can you can kill an enormous number of people and it not be remotely close to genocide within the meaning of the convention if for example you don't do it with the intention of wiping out that people as a people in the language of the convention in whole or in part um, and so one of the problems with the rhetoric that the Israeli government has used is that it actually does potentially bear on intent. And the Smotriches and Ben-Gvirs don't care. But if you're the head of that government, um, Bibi Netanyahu, you have to care. And 
Um, arguably, he does not care enough because he does not fire them from his government, which would cause his government to fall. And he does not discipline himself especially well. And so it, you know, he can say what the policies are and aren't, which he has done. And he's made clear that they do not have a policy of driving Palestinians out of Gaza. And they do not have a policy, obviously, of killing Palestinians as uh, other than targeting Hamas. But uh, when you allow enough of your people to make statements like that uh, over enough time, you put a lot of arrows in South Africa's quiver, and that's what happened here. And I think but for those statements, uh, the plausibility finding uh, as to genocidal intent would not have been made. Um, and so, you know, I think there's a a genuinely uh, self-inflicted quality to the wound that Israel has suffered here. And the response of, I believe it was a dozen members of the current government, was to attend a conference on Thursday or Friday about resettling Gaza removing Palestinians from it and resettling it with uh, uh, the old Gush Katif uh, settlement block, um, which was the settlements that Ariel Sharon removed in 2005 when Israel ceased to occupy Gaza. And so, you know, I, I, I do think this is a situation where if the question is reasonably, is Israel committing genocide in Gaza? The answer to that question is no. If the question is, is there an unholy alliance between Israeli rightists who love to use language that is actually cognizable under the Genocide Convention and people mostly on the left uh, worldwide who want to think about this convention as applying to this situation? Yes, there is an unholy alliance between the two, and they should both eat each other's limbs. So, so, you know, Ben, I don't, I don't disagree with that fundamentally. Like, I do think there's a very self-inflicted wound here, but I also think there's another prong of the evidence here that's really problematic. And that's that there's an incredibly high rate of civilian casualties that Israeli government doesn't deny. Like, they right. openly acknowledge that we're talking two to one in the most optimistic scenarios, civilian, two civilians for every one targeted militant. If you didn't have that element as well, and the displacement, frankly, probably plays in as well. Maybe that's a third prong. I don't think even these statements would weigh as heavily. It's the combination of those three things that I think led to the plausibility finding here. So I, 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 just to be clear, I think that's exactly right. I mean, if, if you don't have a high rate of civilian death, there's no, there's no basis to be taught. You wouldn't even be talking about major human rights violations, right? right. But, but, but the, the thing that, that gives rise to the inference of intentionality is the statements. And if, if you had the same rate of civilian death and none of these statements, the case, South Africa's case would have been dramatically weaker. It definitely would have been weaker. I'm not sure it, it wouldn't have passed the threshold here, if I'm being honest. Like, cause I think the direction we're seeing the court drift between this and Myanmar and Ukraine is the idea where you're, you are having these, you know, huge population transfers, large civilian casualty incidents that they, there is those rise to the prima facie case that there is a at least a possibility 
of genocide here, and that provides the court supervision. And to be clear to listeners, like the reason why these come under the Genocide Convention is because it is the one remaining legal instrument, one of very few that's widely subscribed to the, by the international community, but that has automatic ICJ jurisdiction. Most human rights treaties, international law, like Geneva Conventions, et cetera, do not have that. Um, so it's the one place to get this judicial supervision. But I kind of think that's increasingly proving to be a feature, not a bug in a lot of people's eyes, because it provides a mechanism for what we're seeing in this case, which is continued judicial judicial supervision, which creates a kind of pressure on a state to say, well, we know somebody's watching us and we need to start regulating our behavior to avoid being trapped into the crime of all crimes and having a case. That's particularly important for Israel, I think, who, who does care about the perception that they're committing genocide more than other states because of the obvious historical ties to the Holocaust and its aftermath. But I think that's kind of a tool that a lot of people see value in in this case. Um, and that's why I think the monitorship element of this, the monthly check-in, is so instrumental because it's suggesting that like Israel's going to have to start regulating itself or it's going to be back in front of this court making arguments about why it's not taking these kind of basic steps. And that's going to happen well before we get to the final resolution of this case, which frankly, I am confident Israel will win because the actual bar for not prima facie for actually proving intent, super high, really hard to do. And I'd be very surprised if they thought they met in this case. There's a reason a lot of states might be uncomfortable with that formula. But when you're talking about something as atrocious as genocide and the types of cases we're talking about, which are like huge atrocities, even if they're not, maybe not actually genocide, I think more and more states are actually finding themselves a little more comfortable with that, including the United States, interestingly. So it's a unique, it's a unique mechanism that we're now seeing applied to the most troubling case. But I, I kind of suspect you're, a lot of states are going to see utility in this as a way to try and get Israel to regulate some of this behavior uh, and reinforce some political statements by the United States and others that have been less successful thus far. So have we seen any signs of Israel changing its behavior at all in response to this ruling? I mean, I guess, as as you pointed out, Ben, Israel here is not a unitary actor. We have Smutrich and Ben Gavir making really awful, horrific statements. But what about the IDF or other corners of the Israeli government? So we do have evidence of the IDF uh, shifting gears, and it actually cuts in the other direction. But it's not clear to me that it has anything to do with the ICJ. The pace of operations has slackened uh, considerably. Uh, the Israelis are in relatively advanced U.S.-led talks, indirect, obviously, with Hamas uh, for a sustained, some report six weeks, some eight-week ceasefire in response to the hostage, uh, in, in return for hostage release. And... Um, the pace of air operations is is significantly and artillery operations is definitely uh, lessened which uh, uh has a pretty dramatic impact on the rate of civilian casualties i don't think any of that has much to do with the icj i think there are three big factors that are driving that one is us pressure um which is considerable and uh, the second is um, the fact that the nature of the early uh, part of the operation has forced a lot of people into southern Gaza, where uh, it is much harder to therefore operate 
effectively because you've got even more people crowded together than normal. So you're uh, operating, you know, control of northern Gaza is more or less established, and it's a little bit more of a ground operation than an air operation now. And the third factor is that the uh, um, there's a real debate in Israeli society about whether the objective should be to destroy Hamas or whether the objective should be to free up the hostages. And those uh, objectives have really competing ways to behave if you're prioritizing one versus the other. And so all of that has led to a slowing of the operational tempo, which causes many fewer civilians to be killed. But I'm not sure if any of that has anything really to do with the ruling that the ICJ made, although it will, uh, as to, to Scott's point, make it easier for Israel in a month to address the follow-up than it is for the, than the initial hearing was. Well, folks, that is all the time we have together this week. But this would not be rational security if we did not leave you with some object lessons to ponder over in the week to come. Quinta, what do you have for us this week? I would like to give an update on my favorite topic, New Jersey politics. Um, you may have seen our senator has been indicted. There is now a race on to decide uh, who is going to be wrangling in that primary uh, to take Menendez's seat. Um, so Central New Jersey Representative Andy Kim um, has thrown his hat in the ring. And we also have entering... One, Tammy Murphy, who is the wife of the current governor, um, and until recently was a registered Republican. And the uh, state sort of political, democratic political machine has really thrown its weight behind her. There is a very funny New York Magazine article about this debacle, which includes an incredible quote, which I will now read to you. One elected official tells me, do I think she, meaning Murphy, is the best candidate? No. Do I think it's a good look for New Jersey? No. If you're asking me, am I going to vote for her? The answer is no. This is a person who has publicly endorsed her. <laughs> New Jersey undefeated. I will just say on the other side of that uh, competition, Andy Kim and, you know, I don't do political endorsements. Andy Kim is a remarkably thoughtful and un- New Jersey politician like guy. And if you, uh, listen to our conversation with him on the aftermath from season one, where he talked about his experiences on January 6th, it is one of the most moving, uh, interviews we have done for that series. And so, uh, I will say that without reference to current New Jersey electoral politics. I, I will just say, uh, I will second Ben's positive thoughts about Andy, who's great, and I've known uh, for several years from working together. Uh, and, and in full disclosure, I, I helped support his, his prior campaigns and may yet this one. Uh, but I, I will note, uh, can you imagine if he gets elected, New Jersey will have the most earnest senatorial delegation of all 50 states between Cory Booker, like a living hug personified in Andy Kim. Like it is just so bizarre <laughs> that this is what New Jersey has sent to the United States Senate. Uh but you know, who knows? It very well might happen. And uh, you know, I think it's it's a great uh a great uh you know human side of New Jersey that we don't get to see often enough uh there in the Senate. So thank thank you, beautiful Garden State, for that, uh, if it comes to that. 
Well, folks, I, for my object lesson, I am going uh, to roll logs for a new feature we are rolling out at Lawfare, um, slowly but surely, still coming along uh, as we progress, but something that I am very excited about, something we've talked about trying to do for years, uh, and we're finally making some headway here, which is that we are doing transcripts for our podcast now, at least the Lawfare podcast. I think we're still a few weeks behind. I think the most recent ones were from mid-January. It takes a little while to catch up on these, um, but we're still processing them, and we're trying to do them backwards as well. That's going to be a big task because uh, we have years and years and years of podcasts. But for anybody who listens to this, you know our podcasts are incredibly substantive. Uh, I think some of the best analysis you can find on a lot of these very complicated issues out there. And being able to text search it is a freaking boon uh, that I have found myself using multiple times already in the limited universe we have these transcripts for. So check it out. Keep an eye out for it. We're going to keep perfecting it and trying to get better. They're all automated, so they're not flawless. But you know, that's just the only th- way to do these things at scale. Um, but it's an awesome new feature. I'm really excited about it. I hope you all check it out and find it useful. I don't know if they're going to do rational security. That'll be a probably last item because <laughs> I don't know if there's quite as much value here as in the Lawfare podcast. Well, we maybe are. eventually, yeah. but the Lawfare podcast, uh, we'll get there. I don't know if I need all my words on rational security tech searchable, but that's fine. <laughs> just uh, so that uh, we're clear, this is also part of a uh, larger uh, Lawfare project in making uh, the content on the site more accessible. And so as we develop it, we will also be rolling out the ability to listen to articles that are written, uh, you know, to read articles that were spoken uh, and to listen to articles that were written in text. So, but that requires a little bit of development and is still a little bit down the road. Ben, what do you have for us this week? Well, I have something that is uh, specifically for Scott. Now, as you Very heard excited. in the B-roll, a number of years ago when I was in my small miniature artillery phase. Was the phase small or was the artillery small? The artillery I guess it was a was small, small miniature artillery, so it's both of them were small. Yeah, well, the phase went on for a while and Baby Cannon <laughs> is sit- sitting over there cheerfully listening as I as I tell the story. A bunch of people sent me miniature weapons of various kinds, and one of them was Scott, who acquired for me a miniature toothpick crossbow, who has been named Baby Pretty Crossbow. Awesome. And if my account on Twitter had not been destroyed um, by Elon Musk, you could look up Baby Crossbow and you could see an awesome little video where Scott and I shot an apple with it, and oh, the yeah. toothpick <laughs> really satisfyingly went flunk right into the apple, and uh, it made it. It was not on any intern's head, just to be uh, clear. Correct, it was sitting correct. very professionally and responsibly on a tabletop. So a few weeks ago, I was uh, doom-scrolling through uh, some social media site or other, and an ad popped up for an item that I immediately said, Scott Anderson needs this item. And it is here. It, it arrived two days ago in its own case. Um, and we're going to open the case. And inside is Baby Compound Bow. Whoa. And baby Compound Bow comes with uh, arrows. For those of you who... Uh, <laughs> the arrows are actually razor sharp. Um, and, um, and so this is going straight to the office today. Yeah, it's, as per all these things, the name is Baby Compound Bow. And, uh, we'll put a picture of it on, on, on the show page. 
and I'm sure Scott will want to make a, an appropriate video of it that we will Absolutely. share on social media. I'm going to have to start doing little finger exercises to make sure they're strong enough to pull that thing back. <laughs> I'm a little worried if they're not. That looks very intimidating. <laughs> it's no joke. It's, uh, it's no, a, it is it's not. a serious compound bow, and it is uh, a fits between – it's one span. It fits between my thumb and forefinger. That is exceptional. Well, thank you, Ben. I am very excited about this, admittedly. Uh, I, I do fear we are – going to put an eye out uh, at the law fair offices but but we'll see at least we all wear glasses so our non-glasses wearing colleagues will have to keep keep themselves under an extra layer of protection in the days that come once we break that sucker out well folks until then that brings us to the end of this week's uh exceptionally dangerous episode uh rational security is of course a production of lawfare so be sure to visit us at lawfaremedia.org for our show page for links to past episodes for our written work and the written work of other lawfare contributors and for information on lawfare's other podcast series including the aftermath now out in season two while you're at it be sure to follow us on twitter at ratl security and be sure to leave a rating or review wherever you might be listening also sign up to become a material supporter of lawfare on patreon for an ad-free version of this podcast and other special benefits for more information visit lawfaremedia.org support our audio engineer and producer this week was kara Schillen of goat rodeo and our music as always was performed by sophia yan and we are once again edited by the wonderful jen patcha howell on behalf of my co-host Quinta and our special guest, Benjamin Wittes, I am Scott R. Anderson, and we will talk to you next week. Until then, goodbye. <laughs>